How you guys doing out there? Good? It's great to have you here this morning. Uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to be uh, entering a two-week message series on same-sex attraction. And uh, here is why, beyond just the fact that it is a uh, hot-button topic for our culture, uh, we are on the brink of, well... It's a series that could be one of the most brilliant decisions I've ever made or one of the most foolish. In two weeks, we are going to begin to tackle the New Testament book of Romans. Um, I'll give you more on my excitement as well as my trepidation for entering that foray. Uh, but we won't be too far into that series when the whole series of same-sex attraction crops up. And when we get there, I don't want to have to detour away from what Romans is trying to say to to deal with that issue. So I'm just going to lay it out here for the next couple of weeks, and then we can go from there. Here is my hope for these two weeks. One is that we would get some clarity on what the Bible says, Scripture teaches about human nature, about same-sex marriage, as well as same-sex attraction. Uh, We're going to focus on that pretty much today. Next week, I want to use that clarity we get today to kind of focus on how is it we should function as a church having gotten that clarity. Now, I I tend to believe this. I I tend to believe that most people want most humans to do well, okay? I I think most people want most people to do well. I mean, whether you have an historic Christian understanding of gender and sexuality or whether you are uh, identifying with the LGBTQ community, I think we... If we just give everybody a, a, a chance to kind of get a benefit of the doubt, we all pretty much agree that everybody wants humans to do well. Most folks aren't trying to do harm. Now, there are some outliers. The uh, Westboro Baptist Churches, for example. I mean, when your website is godhatesfags.com, I think you've missed completely the gospel and the spirit of Christ on the issue. But they're not the only ones. There are genuine Christians who are steeped, I think, in bigotry and contempt for anyone that's different than them, and uh, we need to change. There's some Christians who mean well, but have completely deserted what the Bible says on this issue, and they need to change. And in the gay community, there are also outliers. There are those who are so deeply agenda-driven that they're willing to run over anybody who happens to disagree with them, and they need to change. But not every Christian is a knucklehead, and not everyone in the gay community is a knucklehead. This may surprise you, but not everyone in the gay community wants to hit on you or your children. The truth is that many who identify as gay or lesbians are actually wonderful, kind, generous people who make great friends, great neighbors, maybe even great family members. In fact, they may even make better those things than a lot of Christians do. I dare say that at this point, uh, most of us probably have gay family members. I sure do both gay and transgender. And maybe you're torn on whether you should still love them. The short answer to that question is also the long answer to that question, and it's yes, you can do that. In fact, I would argue, based on Christ's teaching, you must do that. And you can do that and still not depart from God's word and God's instructions for us on how to live. We're going to be kind of cracking that nut over the next couple of weeks. So my objective today just to put my cards on the table, is really, it's kind of all about the church. How should the church grasp this issue? And is the issue at its root really distinct from anything you and I as heterosexuals have to face in this world? 
And since I'm totally laying my cards on the table, I truly wish that when this theater is full, half of the people in it would be struggling with same-sex attraction. For me, far better to have that than a bunch of guys who are addicted to porn but not struggling enough to admit it and deal with it. So let me pray for us, and we will dig in. God, we embark on a topic that there is so much hatred and venom. Um, it's easy to lose our way. So we're asking you to would direct us to your way. You would open our eyes with your word, that you would open our hearts with your spirit, that we might be able to operate in this world in a way you want us to. Not forsaking the truth, but not jamming it down people's throats either. Let us love like you have loved us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, probably no better place to start on this uh, rather than hear my words, let's just listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. He is being tested. He's being looked to be tripped up by the Pharisees. And here's what happens. Pharisees come up to him and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, and don't miss this point, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. We'll be picking up that theme in a little bit. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, maybe you've seen this next slide on uh, social media somewhere. A picture that says everything that Jesus taught about homosexuality and it's a, it's a blank page. Same thought as in this slide featuring Stephen Colbert. The contention is that Jesus never said a single word about homosexuality. And the truth is that Jesus never actually uttered the word homosexual. But Jesus also never mentions the word incest or bestiality or pedophilia. So well, how do you make sense of this? Well, Jesus is teaching as a first century Jewish rabbi who had memorized the entire Old Testament and clearly held all the convictions contained in it. It would have been absolutely scandalous for Christ to have disapproved of anything that the Old Testament said do, or, or approved of anything the Old Testament said don't do. Holds all the truth and convictions there. All the issues of morality in the Old Testament, Jesus held on to. If you read through the Gospels, and I encourage you to do that, read through the Gospels, you're going to discover that Jesus kept affirming the Old Testament over and over and over again as he was asked these kind of prying questions. Um, but the Old Testament condemns all manner of sexual immorality, which would include sinful heterosexual acts as well as homosexual activity. Hope you notice in the passage you just read from Matthew, where Jesus, in response to a question about divorce, goes right back to the Old Testament. Not only the Old Testament, it goes right back to the beginning, to the creation and how God set everything up at the dawn of creation. Marriage. Man and woman intended to be a permanent, exclusive relationship that would produce offspring. 
If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus spoke against sexual immorality many times. The Greek word pornea, which in first century Judaism included all kinds of things. Adultery, premarital sex, same-sex activity, prostitution, incest. And frankly, sex in any way, shape, or form outside of sex within a God-endorsed marriage between a man and a woman. So did Jesus talk about homosexuality? Yeah, implicitly. It was in everything he talked about when he talked about what is the truth about sex and marriage for people. So Jesus linked proper behavior to the creation narrative. I think it might be useful to go back and see what he actually is referring to. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So having decided to do it, he then goes about doing it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God looks at that and says, hey, everything's good. Now the very next chapter, we get a little more detail on the making of this creation, the making of man and woman, and we're told... God also sort of said, oh, you know, it's not really that good for man to be all by himself. He takes a rib for the man, fashions it into a woman, presents her to the man, and uh, let's just say he was beside himself. He was ecstatic. He was uh, joyful for sure. It was love at first sight, and God performs the first wedding in history, conducting the wedding himself. And that love between the two of them, that one flesh thing, began to not only be a lot of fun, but to produce offspring. Now, that is the design God established for marriage, and sex is impossible with same-sex marriage. You cannot produce that product. We can't be one flesh that produces offspring. Two guys, two gals cannot be joined together in one flesh and be fruitful and multiply. That's why God set marriage up the way he did and defined it. One man, one woman coming together for an unbreakable union. Now, got to step back for a second because I don't want you to go down any dark alleys while I'm trying to pursue the rest of this message. One man, one woman, one child. That's the design, right? But please do not hear me say that infertility in such a marriage lessens or negates the design for that marriage. Please don't hear me say that marriage is really a marriage unless you've got kids involved. I'm not saying that. Infertility is what we sometimes get in a fallen world. And for couples trying to have kids and cannot, it brings sorrow. Uh, My daughter Lindsay, some of you know, suffered her second miscarriage this last week at 10 weeks, and it hurts. Fallen world can do that. But even without children, a marriage can and a marriage should still represent Christ and his church as Christ is the wooing and loving husband and the church representing the responding and loving and response bride. An infertile couple, couple who's a Christian is not something less than, okay? And I'm not saying that. For many of those couples, adoption is a wonderful way to sort of make possible what the fallen world through infertility might make impossible. So, just want us to grasp the biblical teaching on marriage and human sexuality. Sex is intended to be, laid out by God to be, something that cements the binding of a man and woman together in a permanent, exclusive, and unbreakable union. That's why casual sex is such a tragedy. I read an article in the Washington Post just a couple weeks ago that zeroed in on the damage that, care, that casual sex is causing our young folks. And it was not written by a Christian. It just followed up on a book I've been touting for the last couple of years by uh, Donna Freitas called The End of Sex. 
if you've got young kids in your house, you need to read this before they become 13. It's all about the hookup culture and the damage it is causing particularly to guys. And here's what these non-Christian experts are finding, that the more someone tries to enjoy the pleasures of sex while denying God's purpose for it, the more you train yourself to be relationally unmoved by it. Sex will lose its binding power, its covenant-making and covenant-keeping power in a life. That's why scriptures are so clear that sex is reserved for a relationship of marriage between a man and a woman, and it's intended to seal and strengthen that covenant between them. It's, a, it's an act of whole life entrustment. It's like, not only will I be physically naked with you, but I will be spiritually and emotionally and legally absolutely vulnerable with you from this time on. See, sex is a, an incredibly good time, but we can praise God for that, right? But it's so much more, has so much more power than we ever give it credit for. Now, Jesus also indicates something else we just read in Matthew 19, and that is something that refers to the fall of man, the hardness of their hearts. Uh, when fall of man occurred, sin comes in, and it damaged everything, not just living rooms, okay? I think I got that, yeah. It's damaged all of us. Don't miss that. All of us. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis 3, they were rebelling against God, and we don't want to submit to him. We don't want to be him to be the boss of us. We want to make the call on what's right for us. And wasn't that, in fact, the invitation? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. In essence, you won't need him anymore. You can be your own God. You can make your own path. You can decide for you what you want to do. And that rebellion not only condemned them, but it also corrupted them. And we inherited that condemnation and that corruption. Sin has infected all of us. And the tragedy is that God's design then is now distorted in almost every area of human life. God's design for relationships, distorted. God's design for marriage, distorted. God's design for sex, distorted. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, almost all the New Testament writers have declared that basically every person in the world, every person in this room for sure, is fallen and has sexual sin as part of their lives. All of us. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. One of the most straightforward passages in the entire Bible on human sexuality, and in particular, same-sex relationships. Starting in verse 19. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but because God has shown it to them. So in other words, God has clearly revealed things about himself in nature, in the creation, and yet we don't like them. We don't like what he, what he reveals. We don't want to acknowledge him. Why? Well, if we acknowledge him, we got to submit to him. We don't want to submit to him. And so in man's unrighteousness, we suppress what we know to be true. Well, what do they start out suppressing? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, there's a, such a thing as called natural revelation. God revealing things about himself in the things that he has made in creation. So what's obvious from their creation? Well, there's a God that he created everything the universe demonstrates order, organization, thought, yeah, design. He's pretty powerful, pretty good. He made steaks, made flowers, pretty good. So we should know better, but we suppress that, it says mankind does. And we see in verse 21, you start seeing a downward spiral. You start suppressing God's stuff. You start suppressing the truth. Bad things happen to you, heart and mind. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile 
in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Messed up minds, messed up hearts. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, distortion of sex, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So here's the condition. All of us in humanity have become idolaters. That's the way we show up here on earth. We've worshiped ourselves and other things that God has made rather than God who made it all. And it has profound consequences. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, not, what ought not to be done. Now here is the big idea of this passage. Sinful humanity rejects God and his design and then replaces it with their own. Humanity's desires are then disordered, distorted because of sin. Every person in this room, including myself, has distorted desires. There are things that you and I want that are contrary to God's design for us. When a man leaves his wife, he's pursuing a desire contrary to God's original design for marriage. When a woman commits adultery, she's acting out of desire contrary to God's design for marriage. When we look at pornography that objectifies other people, we have chosen our desires over God's design. When we give in to greed, we are giving in to our desires over God's design. When we slander or gossip about somebody, we are choosing our desires, distorted as they are, over God's design. We can go on and on and on. We've all done it. And scripture declares the whole world guilty. In man's fallen state, we just naturally want what is opposed to God's original design. Now, I'm not saying we want all those things, right? Some of them we don't want, right? When you get angry and blow up at your kid, scream and yell out of a desire for control, and later on you feel bad about it, you kind of experience it as an unwanted desire, but it's a desire that you had and you acted on. When you fall to sexual temptation, and you feel horrible about it afterwards, like maybe Miranda Lambert does. You've experienced an unwanted desire, but still, it's a desire that you have and have acted on. And one expression, only one expression, of that fallen condition and distorted desire is, as Paul states here, people of the same sex desiring one another and then acting on that desire. Homosexuality is not the worst expression of a disordered or distorted desire. But Paul uses it simply as an example of what happens when we choose our distorted desires over or bents over God's design. Now, for a couple of thousand years, the church has understood this text in Romans as clearly speaking against all same-sex activity. But recently, revisionists have sought to reinterpret Romans chapter 1. They interpret it differently. They say things like this. Well, Paul is addressing something different in his day than we know today. Well, what we know today are these wonderful, monogamous, consensual, committed, same-sex relationships. And Paul did not know anything about that back in his day. 
those loving homosexual relationships didn't exist back then. So in their view, Paul's not talking about that kind of homosexual activity. He's talking about something different. What Paul was down on, they say, was you know, male prostitution or some exploitative or oppressive, maybe a men and boys kind of relationships. That's their spin on what Paul is saying. The, the problem with this interpretation is pretty straightforward. It takes what the Bible says very clearly and, surprise, surprise, distorts it. We know this because we just read it, right? Paul is not talking about man-boy love. He's not talking about, you know, rape. He's talking about men lusting after men, burning with passion for one another. It's mutual and consensual, not exploitative, not rape, right? Two men burning with passion for each other and acting out on that passion. In this passage, Paul also includes women, women sharing same-sex relationships, and he condemns both as unnatural based on what? God's original design for how men and women ought to be naturally attracted to each other. So, the revisionist reading doesn't, I don't think, pass the giggle test on interpreting scripture, but it also doesn't pass the historical test either, if you know anything about Greek and Roman culture and literature at the time Paul was writing. That history is chock full of consensual, monogamous, committed, same-sex relationship in that world that revisionists now claim didn't exist back then. Uh, therefore, it makes them okay today, since they didn't exist back then. I could fill my time with experts on this, but I'll just use one, a fellow named N.T. Wright, a prominent New Testament scholar who's also a classicist, an expert in Greek-Roman literature and culture. Here's what he says. I put it on the screen for you so you'll be able to read along with me. As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from the earlier Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, and it seems to me they knew as much about it as we do. In particular, a point that's often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relationships between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men, and of course, there was plenty of that then, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. Now, the second thing the revisionists say about Romans chapter 1 is that Paul is speaking about heterosexuals who are committing homosexual acts that are contrary to their personal nature or their own personal orientation. Their argument goes something like this. If you are born that way as a heterosexual, then that is your nature. I mean, that's what's natural for you. If you were born that way as a homosexual, then that's your nature. That's your orientation. That's what's natural for you. And if you just go with your nature, your orientation, everything's good. Well, if that's the case, then, revisionists, what is Paul talking about? Here's their argument. Paul is referring to someone, they say, male or female, who is a heterosexual by nature, but who acts contrary to that heterosexual nature by experimenting with homosexual activity. But if you were born that way as a homosexual, you can just go with it because that's your nature. How do you respond to that? Well, the main problem with that particular interpretation is, of course, what Paul actually just says. Because when Paul is speaking of natural relations or nature, he is not talking about your or my personal nature or your or my personal bent or your or my personal uh, orientation. He defines nature and natural relations 
in the context of what God, original manuscript was, at creation for gender. Paul says, men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Paul is establishing the natural baseline established by God back in Genesis 1 with the creation of male and female and the natural attraction they were to have for one another. It's not talking about your or my personal orientation as fallen human beings. Listen, the plain reading of the meaning of Romans chapter 1 embraced throughout the history of the church is that the entrance of sin into creation has resulted in all kinds of unnatural All kinds of unwanted desires, one of them being same-sex attraction. That is the point of Romans chapter 1. So, let us get to the crux of the issue. It's this. Is same-sex attraction a sin? How would you answer that? Is same-sex attraction a sin? Is same-sex attraction wrong? Well, I'll tell you, biblical experts are all over the place on this issue. I'll be open to you showing me that I'm wrong, but here's what I believe the Bible teaches is this, that same-sex attraction is not a sin. Surprised? Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Listen, when you are attracted to someone you should not be attracted to, that's not necessarily a sin. So I'm married, and when I got married to Jackie, the love of my life, It's not as if I never, ever, ever found another woman attractive. Sure, they all pale by comparison, but it's not as if I've never found another woman attractive. And this may blow your mind, but it's not as if she's never found another man attractive. We're all going to have distorted attractions in our life. Thank you, sin nature, right? Same-sex attraction is not a sin any more than my being attracted to another woman. It becomes a sin, however, if I act on that attraction, right? It's a sin if I sit around and ponder her, lust after her, which is an action of the mind and heart, right? If you're confused about the difference, you go back and listen to our messages last year on Sermon on the Mount that will set you straight. So same-sex attraction is just one of the myriad sinful desires that plague humankind, plague you, plague me, our pride, our wanting to always get our way, our greed, our wanting more, our materialism, All those result from sin entering God's creation and distorting our loves. I think Pink got it half right. We actually are are broken as well as bent. The special today by Miranda Lambert highlighted that man's vices are pretty extensive. But listen, we're not all bent and distorted in the same way. But we are all bent. You drink too much. But you look down on someone with a gambling addiction because you don't have that. You don't gamble, but you're abusive to your wife. You may not abuse your wife, but you look down at someone who shoplifts. You may not shoplift, but you look down on someone addicted to porn. You're not addicted to porn, but you're a workaholic. You're not a workaholic, but you're a lazy bum. The list is endless. Truth is, we all have distorted desires. We're all bent. And the origin of it all is the same. Sin enters creation and messes mankind up. We all inherited it. It's just that it doesn't play out for everybody in exactly the same way. We're all bent uniquely, but we all have the potential as Christians to be made new creations. And through Christ, we have the potential to be freed from being enslaved by those distorted desires. That doesn't mean the distorted desire will disappear forever, but they do not have to control you. 
Sam Alberry is a uh, pastor in the UK. He lives with same-sex attraction. He has submitted that attraction to the Lord, lives a faithful, celibate life. Listen to what he says in his book. And in his book uh, called, Is God Anti-Gay? He's actually referring to Romans chapter 1. He says, basically, this text shows us why it's not true for those with same-sex attraction to say, but God made me this way. He goes on. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not a reflection of how God has made me. Hope you get this point that that same-sex attraction is not itself a sin. A distorted, distorted desire is not necessarily a sin, but it becomes one when you just go with it, when you give into it, which we do often, right? You may not feel like killing someone, but that's a bent and distorted desire. You probably haven't followed that one in here. Nobody in here has done. Have you ever been so angry at somebody that you wanted to get back at them and did? Hmm? Sure, you've done that. Just because a distorted desire is does not make a distorted desire an ought. In other words, what I feel isn't necessarily the way I should act or how I should live. Look, there are people who live with an, indicla- indi- an inclination towards alcoholism or drugs or shoplifting or gambling, right? Just because something is an is does not make it an ought. Everyone's got unwanted desires that we are to exercise self-control over and not give ourselves into. We all do. So same-sex attraction, which isn't a sin in and of itself, can turn into that when we give in to the bent and distorted desire. All homosexuality is, at its root, is simply a rejection of God's design from the creation for human sexuality. Now, I suspect a lot of us here are probably not struggling with same-sex attraction, so we think we're off the hook. So I've got to show you one more thing from Romans, if you've got the patience for it. We've got to, we've got, we've got to, we've got to avoid magnifying same-sex attraction as if it's some massive sin and put it into a category all by itself where our little sins are just minor league. Homosexuality is not the major leagues of sin. All sin essentially is the fruit of the same human condition. A rejection of God, his rule, and his design, and an elevation of my desire over God's design for me. All human sin has that same root. So I want you to notice how in Romans chapter 1, Paul has just set us all up. Because maybe some of you, as we're preaching through this, teaching through this, are going, man, that's right, Dwayne, about time somebody preached about this, get those homosexuals. If that's you, God has you right where he wants you. Because after 28 comes verse 29, talking about people, the people who reject God. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. You mean this whole thing is not just about homosexuality? No, it's about the rotten, fallen nature of mankind in general. Verse 29, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Uh Uh-oh. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not just the homosexuals, not just same-sex attractive. People who do any of these things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they approve those who practice it. We who are straight, we who are the heterosexuals, we've done exactly the same thing 
as those in the same-sex activity. We've taken our distorted desires, we have elevated them above God's design, and we've said, look, I'm going to make my own decisions on this. I'm going to be God in this area. You and I are guilty of every kind of evil. Covetousness, everybody covet any, ever? Ever want something someone else has? Ever been so angry at anybody? Ever been envious? Ever been jealous? Ever gotten into fights? Ever gossiped? Ever been haughty? Ever been boastful? Ever been disobedient to your parents? Ever? I don't know any kid that can say they've done that perfectly. So Paul's point is that all of humanity is in need of grace. That's the point of Romans chapter 3. He goes on in verse 10 of that chapter and says this, look, none is righteous. If you think there's a little spark of goodness in mankind, you will be disabused of that notion when you get to Romans 1, 2, and 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Talking about humankind. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul has just thrown all of us, not just the same sex attractive, under the bus. We're all sinners. And just when it seems all hope is lost, we get to Romans 3 that talks about a grace that God provides that rescues us from not only sin's condemnation, but from sin's corruption. We all deserve God's judgment, but in his mercy, he loves us. He gives his son for us. He gives his son for the gay and the straight, by the way. To rescue us, gives us new identities. Not as gay or straight, but as those who are loved by God, created with dignity and value and worth, being forgiven, adopted, brought into God's family. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're going to see a list of all the sins that people commit that's going to keep them out of heaven. And in those sins, you and I are to be found. Then he says, but such as some of you were. But you're washed. You've been justified. You've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. You've been brought into God's family, despite all your goofiness. Paul throws us all into the bus, but then he shows us the gospel, that Jesus has come, that Jesus has died for our rebellion. Then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, that we are going to have to continue to struggle against these distorted desires, yours and mine, the same sex attractive, that never really go away. Constant battle against this sin and these desires, but empowered by God's grace, those desires progressively are to lose their power in our lives. So part one of this series. Clear teaching of Christ in the New Testament. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We all deserve God's judgment. Yet in his mercy, he's given us Jesus to rescue us, save us, transform us, and one day, finally, when he comes back, set us completely free. When it comes to teaching on marriage, Jesus is pretty clear in the New Testament. Until God gives you the ability and the opportunity to enter into a marriage relationship that God would endorse, you are to embrace a life of disciplined celibacy for Christ. That's the call. Now, same-sex attracted people hear this and go, that sounds completely unfair. Because a straight person, a heterosexual, can at least have the possibility of entering into a marriage relationship that God would endorse. So I've got to say this. Yeah, God may just give you that ability. Even if you're same-sex attracted, he's done it myriad times. I'll have a a comment uh, next week about a person, a, a woman who's actually same-sex attracted, was living a lesbian lifestyle, is now actually married to a pastor, several kids. God has given her the ability to actually enjoy, be content, love in a heterosexual relationship. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen, but it's possible because God is awesome. Um, you may still struggle, right? I mean, let's say you're uh, really fascinated with tall women, but you married a short one. 
right? A tall woman walks by, you might be attracted to that person. But if you're married to the short one, you give up that desire for tall women. I know the same sex is probably a much stronger, deeper passion than that. But scripture's clear. God can give a person the ability to be what he wants them to be. All things are possible with God. Number two, for those who would say that this sounds unfair, let me just say this. Everybody's in the same boat. The same requirement goes for heterosexuals. I read about a church up in New York City that's full of 30 and 40-year-old women. They've decided to embrace a life of celibacy, waiting for the right guy that God would endorse to intermarriage to have sex. Now, there's a ton in New York City of guys that want to date them, but they're non-Christians. And the gals say, nope, even if we fell in love with this person, it's not a relationship that God would endorse because they're not Christians. So we are going to wait. We're going to wait. It's the same call on a heterosexual male whose wife has been paralyzed and can no longer have sex. Others people would say, well, if I'm same-sex attracted, I can't enter into a marriage relationship that God would endorse, and I'm never going to be fully alive because I can't, get, I can't get married and have sex. The error in that way of thinking is that uh, basically a lie that our culture has sold us. A person in human history who was probably the fullest of joy, had the greatest relationships, probably closest to God, and lived an absolutely full, vibrant life was Jesus Christ. Celibate, single male, lived probably more fully than anybody did. So this is the call. This is the biblical theology of biblical sex, of human sexuality and marriage. Let me just want to end up by saying this. <clears throat> you can listen to this. You can hear the words of Christ. We can, we can have some truth. And we can walk out of here and not be anything like the way Jesus would have walked out of here. Said another way, it is possible for you and me to deeply disagree with someone and deeply love them at the same time. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. You get that? We, we pass over that so often because we hear it so much. A friend of sinners. A friend. He deeply loved sinners. Those he disagreed with deeply. And those who disagreed with him. And frankly, if we don't know this right now, we're going to find out. Jesus probably disagrees with every single one of us on some issue right now. And he's still sitting here with us. He welcomes sinners as his friends. He's gathered around a table with sinners this morning, just like us. So for us to say that we disagree with members of the gay community on matters of sexuality in no way frees us whatsoever from the obligation and call of Christ in our lives to love them, to serve them, to seek their well-being as people made in the image of God. We should be defending them when they're mistreated. We probably need to repent from our own self-righteousness. We think we're better than them. Our crassness, maybe our snobbery, maybe our insensitivity. We definitely need to repent of seeing them as worse than us because we are all, as Paul said, under the bus. We're all us. Sinners, in need of grace, you and I still struggle with the unwanted and sinful desires we inherited as part of the sin nature. Next week, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take aim at how does a church operate given this reality. How can we be a church, not just for the people who are like you and me, but for people who are same-sex attracted? How can we be a church for everybody, every kind of sinner, not just the ones that we like, not just the ones that we approve of? How can we be a church for the same-sex attracted as well as you and me? Let's pray. Lord, you know that... um, that I know that everything revolves around what's in our minds. What's in our minds shapes everything. What we believe determines everything about what we do, how we act, determines our emotions, determines our will. So I ask that you would plant truth in us this morning. 
that allow us to begin to be the people you want us to be. Realizing that we have distorted desires. Surely we acknowledge those to you. When we came to you, why would we come to you if we thought we were good enough to not have to need you? For Christians here this morning, we have acknowledged our desperate need for you. Our sin that drives us not only away from you, but to cause us to reject you, to suppress your truth. So this morning, we just want to unveil a little bit of your truth this morning. Increasingly, we're going to have to deal with this issue as a church. Increasingly in our families, increasingly in our neighborhoods, increasingly in our schools, increasingly in our lives, we're going to be forced to deal with this. We cannot run and hide. We need to have truth. We need to know how to operate in this world. How do we love and still have the truth. How do we operate? Would you bless us with understanding? Would you bless us with your word? Would you bless us with how do we act? Change our hearts. Change our minds. That we might be the people that, that you loved, that you want to transform. That you are still in doing that. And so I pray that even this week you would help us to achieve that. Be willing to submit to you. Let you change us. Change our minds. Change our hearts. That we will change our actions. We're going to do communion. There may be some stuff we need to take to you. We may have to deal with our haughtiness. We may have to deal with the fact that we think we're not as bad as sinners as everybody else. We may have to, have, we may have to repent of having put them in a category thinking we're not in that category. That was to look at that bread, look at that juice. Remember, it was for those distorted desires we have that you died. Change us in Christ's name.